0: To descend to the more miserable style of human discourse. We talk badly about death, whether it's the platitudes that we say at funerals or the fear that we have. What Jesus is saying in this passage is that He will master death for us. That we don't have to fear, that we don't have to see it as an inevitable end, but merely a sleep to see Jesus.
1: Luke nine twenty one, 21. That's um, right, right? Yeah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. He must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take the cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them. He comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Jesus' seemingly paradoxical statement um, to the disciples pleads that we take the focus of our minds and hearts off of the finite things that we consider life. Um, so extremely that it resembles death from our perspective, and to the eternal things of God which give true life.
2: Father,
3: He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep going. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass for him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup for me. Yet not what I will, but your will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. In this passage, I was struck by how, in the moment of death and fear, approaching Jesus, he turned completely to the Father and to the Lord's will. He even is focused on the disciples not following temptation above him. He's fully seeking the Lord. But the disciples, on the other hand, they keep falling short. In face of their embarrassment and shame, they did not know what to say to him. And that really struck a chord with me, because I really often feel ashamed and don't know what to say to him either. So I remain silent and I hide, which is heartbreaking in the face of Jesus' love and sacrifice and his death. So I wanted you to think about in what areas of your life are you keeping silent and falling asleep and not knowing it.
4: miracle for us, or we choose good things because we not too much of it, um, and just how that just really little leads to us having life that's just like this halfway kind
5: So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? The pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So I have two main thoughts about this. I think this scripture offers us perspective on what's important, and it's the opposite of the perspective that the world gives us. The world tells us, worry first about your needs and your wants, and then maybe if you're lucky, you'll find out who you are and what your identity is or self-actualization. But Christ tells us who we are. He tells us our identity is as image bearers of God, and our responsibility is to join His redemptive work. And the rest will fall into place, and that's our top priority. Um, And how this plays out in my life is I worry. I find myself worrying a lot about my job and about the consequences of my mistakes and I worry about getting fired or losing my social work license, which is irrational, but I still worry about it. And all of those concerns are about me. It's about how will I be affected, how will this play out in my life, and how will I recover, and how will I get through or meet my basic needs or anything. Um, but this scripture reminds me that my primary concern is not me. It's about joining God and what he's doing. What am I doing to love and serve the people around me? How am I honoring Christ? Regardless of the outcome of any of those choices or regardless of how negative the situation may be, my top priority is the kingdom. Yeah. Jesus, through his death and through his life, has freed us from the worry that comes from self-preservation by giving us a much higher calling.
6: Yeah, yeah. 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 Amen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amen.
0: a little bit about the example that he set. Uh, he was under a lot of pressure as a manager of like a whole department of this warehouse for our shift, and it would be really easy for him to always think and frame things in terms of like, we need to meet our goals because that's going to reflect badly on me, or we need to not leave a mess for the next shift because then I'll get in trouble. But he didn't do that. He would frame it in terms of uh, doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do, or things like that. And he would give people a second chance, like people were not making their production requirements, instead of just letting them continue to fail until they get fired, he would um, find a way to put them on tasks where they're not on production until their demerits can fall off and then they get a second chance. Um, whenever we had to do, to do like mandatory overtime, he would like kind of make himself look stupid and kind of make it like a fun challenge where we're going to like have a competition with the other shift. Um, there were a lot of things that he did that made it clear that he was thinking about the people that he was responsible for in that position. And... Uh, not just focusing on how it would affect him if things didn't go badly. So I just want to share that example as something for us to think about when we try to figure out how to uh, do that in the roles that we're in. Hmm. I'm going to be
7: reading from John 4, and 14, but I wanted to give you a little bit of context before I started to read that. In John 4, Jesus is traveling to Judea from, uh, to to Galilee from Judea, and on his way stops in Samaria at a well and asks a woman (laughs) to give her a drink. Uh, the Jews and Samaritans didn't get along because they had different beliefs, and so I'm paraphrasing, but the woman basically asks Jesus, "Why are you a Jew asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink?" And Jesus says, "If you knew who I was, you would be asking me about the living water that I have." And um, in those days, living water um, meant any water that was actively flowing. So Jesus responds to her with this. Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. A couple of chapters later in John 7, Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow up from him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So from John 4, 13, and 14, Jesus is offering this woman eternal life if she would believe in him as her Savior. So what does that, or what can it look like in her life? Well, if we go back and we look at the Samaritan woman's response, she does believe, and she goes back and tells others in her town about Christ. And then in verse 39, it says, many of the Samaritans from that town believe in him because of that woman's testimony. Um, meeting Jesus personally should believe, to her response, and the woman from Samaria couldn't waste <laughs> time her town and tell others. It leaves the detail that she even left her water jar at the well. She was so excited she stopped what she was doing to go tell, go tell others. It was a perfect picture of the streams of living water that were flowing out from her. The actual definition of a spring is that it's the result of an aquifer being filled to the point that it overflows onto the land surface. I feel like that's a perfect picture of what um, our lives should look like, overflowing with Christ's love and grace that we can't wait to share with others.
8: And I think it represents the idea that both uh, communion for us uh, really uh, becomes the body of Christ as we take it. Um, But that body isn't a body that's just between us and Him. Paul goes on to explain that in Christianity this body is shared among us. That we are the body of Christ. Um, which is pretty exciting. And so as you take this bread and hold on to it for a moment, uh, remember that this bread was made by somebody else for you. As you pass it on from one person to the next, uh, and we take our nourishment from just this small bread, and, uh, that's really our life in the body. Is that our goal as we are Christ's ambassadors to each other is to nourish each other. Um, to take nourishment from God, and then to, you know, really replenish each other through that uh, that bread. About every fourth person has a, a cup of juice and four cups. And you are going to take those four cups and you are going to pour that juice into those cups for the people around you. Again, same thing, kind of symbolic of us pouring out our lives for each other. And so, uh, you know, pour that juice into the cup for those people right around you. Should be enough for everybody. If you don't have enough, you have a few
0: lights like, under
8: here. And then we'll take this uh, after I read uh, this passage. I'm going will be reading out in John six and verse twenty-five, and this is actually kind of a long passage, so. Uh, And I probably will continue further even than I told Frank, so some of you are going to have to listen make him look bad for a moment. Mm -hmm. So 6, 25, and then we'll take this uh, all together. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, what did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you (laughs) ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils. Food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What well, miraculous sign then will you give, that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the man in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it isn't Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. <laughs> then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. And I will raise Him up at the last day. At this the Jews began to grumble about Him, because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can He now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I will raise him up at the last day. It's written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the man in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up with the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so that the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. When you take this communion, I just really have one thought. If you come to Jesus simply to eat a meal? So many of us in our faith, we really do come back over and over and time and time again to Jesus just to get something. We want eternal life. We want more friends. We want joy. And all those things God promises. But unfortunately, he doesn't promise as a piecemeal deal. It's all or nothing. He takes charge. And then he begins to give us those things that we wanted. But we don't get to treat Jesus as a quick meal. We have to constantly fight against that, I think, in our lives. Of treating him like a quick meal. Um, treating him as something that will simply satisfy for the day and on to the next thing the next. And Thank God he forgives us for doing that. And then when we pursue him, he allows us to really feed on the kind of life that comes only from him. So I want you just to think about that. I know normally we take communion kind of as a, a, you know, a family meal, but this one we're going to be a little bit more punitive and kind of think a little bit. Uh, and then in a moment, um, uh, Austin's going to come back up and lead us in two more songs and, uh, and then close us in prayer.
2: Bye. See you. We celebrate you today and throughout this week, and we ask that you continue to be with us in a real and powerful way and shape us to be more like your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.
5: Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week, and you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.